Hey everybody, this is Alf speaking. Welcome back to the Macro Compass. This article will cover China, which is supposed to become the largest economy in the world over the next decade, and yet it still looks like a black box to many. It's a largely under-owned market. Arguably, though, there are structural reasons why that's the case. For example, despite China accounting for almost 20% of global population and GDP in purchasing power parity terms, and above 10% of global exports, its equity market cap only accounts for 5% of the global equity markets. Now, as a friend and a great investor would say, well, Alf, there are good reasons for this structural underallocation, right? For example, how would you feel about arguing against a Chinese company in a Chinese court of law? Well, I wouldn't feel great, but at the end, should we invest or not invest in China? Well, the conclusion and takeaway of this article is that I believe China deserves a place in a global macro asset allocation portfolio for two main reasons. One, while it's true that the structural drivers of GDP growth in China are weakening, that's uh, population growth and productivity trends, the same can be said about most other global economies. And the ability to implement meaningful reforms to change this trend is arguably much more impaired in Western societies than in China from a political standpoint. The second point is that Xi Jinping seems to understand the structural headwinds ahead, and he is committed to engineer what he calls a genuine growth and transition China from a cheap labor export-oriented country to a more domestic demand-centered economy. Now, obviously, this transition is likely to be painful and involve plenty of deleveraging episodes. And so when thinking about portfolio allocation to China, one should appropriately reflect this expected volatility as well in the sizing of their Chinese investments. In general, I would say that the new, there is a new common prosperity paradigm in China. It's a bit more common, but a bit less prosperity. Now, before I forget, uh, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor or any sort of partnership or in my bespoke consultancy services, feel free to reach out at the email themacrocompass at gmail.com. Now, back to point number one. Over the last decade, China has been able to engineer a tremendous cocktail of both structural and cyclical growth. Over the last 40 years, from a structural growth perspective, have a look at the Chinese working age population. I put the chart in the, in the article. It grew from 600 million to over 1 billion working age uh, people in China. That's a 70, 67% increase in the amount of people that could actively contribute to economic growth over the last 40 years. It's really large. Now, obviously, if you look forward, the lagged effects of the one-child policy and the widespread population aging are taking a toll on Chinese working age population going forward. Over the next decades, the United Nations estimates that China workforce will shrink from 1 billion to around 700 million by 2065. That's a large drop and a, and a pretty strong headwind to structural growth. The other component of structural growth is productivity whose trends have been very favorable for China, especially until 2011. They've started to stagnate a bit over the last decade. In the early 2000s, China joined WTO and applied a lot of reforms to reduce you know, uh, internal migration barrier, external trade barriers. And so productivity picked up very strongly, but over uh, very recently, that started to stagnate a bit. And that's because the tailwinds of joining WTO are behind us. And the creation and the rapid growth of these young Chinese private firms has slowed down a bit. Now, large-scale and socially painful structural reforms would be needed to boost productivity going forward. But China is in a unique position to be able to apply these reforms 
more meaningful if they want to, because the political cycle in China is much less important than in Western societies. Now, China, on top of this very strong structural growth over the last two, three decades, has also overlaid a very big cyclical growth, especially between 2010 and 2020, because once demographic and productivity trends started to slow down in the early 2000s, China decided to aggressively overlay cyclical growth with an unprecedented amount of credit expansion in a short period of time. Giving you one figure, for China it took only 10 years between 2011 and 2021 to lever up its entire economy, private debt plus public debt, from 170% to almost 300% of GDP in only 10 years. It took the US and Europe about 30 to 40 years to achieve the same credit expansion. And that's obviously possible because China is is basically applying uh, a credit window guidance of some sorts. That's the same strategy applied in Japan between the 70s and the 90s. It was one of the primary drivers behind the creation of the bubble economy in Japan of the 80s. It's basically a model where the central bank or policymakers can impose bank credit growth quotas on commercial banks. They can effectively engineer large, timed, and targeted credit injections towards certain sectors via the commercial banking lending system. And the sheer size of credit creation over the last decade had obviously led to asset price inflation, for instance, in the real estate sector. And so Xi Jinping is realizing that this model, which he calls being a model of fictional growth, actually has to be replaced by a model of genuine growth. So what's the new plan for the Chinese common prosperity? Well, the ambition is to move the Chinese economy business model from an export-oriented cheap labor into a domestic demand-powered economy that is still able to preserve its prominent position as a global exporter. And the starting point is pretty favorable because in China, private consumption only represents 35% of GDP, while in the US, the number is 70% GDP. So there is plenty of room to catch up in principle. But in order to boost consumer demand, that will mean that a large proportion of the GDP or the economic value added should be redistributed to workers via higher real wages. But it's exactly because of low inflation-adjusted wages that China has been able to boost its status as a global exporter and its competitiveness. And so the the transition towards a demand-powered economy might prove to be difficult to engineer. Now, obviously, that's Xi Jinping's objective. And I think because of the unique position that China has when it comes to a political standpoint of being able to engineer reforms without facing a frequent political cycle, like in Western democracies, and because Xi Jinping has understood that he's facing very strong structural headwinds, and on top of it, because of China being an under-owned market when it comes to its global importance against its global market cap, although for good reasons, when you put all together, I think China can belong to a global macro-asset allocation portfolio and its positions should be sized according to the expected volatility that we will have to um, endure uh, while this transition takes takes place. Effectively, there is a new common prosperity model in China, which is a bit more common and a bit less prosperity. I'll see you guys at the next update here on the Macro Compass. And as always, thanks for listening.